0: So we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, so you can turn to Luke chapter 12, or I printed off our section for you in your uh, worship folder. Well, this passage in Luke, we're going to talk about greed this morning, <clears throat> greed. And uh, this passage in Luke is actually has a very direct application from the Apostle Paul, and it goes like this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and Many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Now, many of us probably know some individuals who have succumbed to this temptation, and they've actually ended up exactly as the apostle has described here. It's very sad. To see this process take place in somebody's life, if you've ever watched it, especially when it gets to the very end. It can easily happen. But on the other hand, just prior to this, in the same letter, the apostle writes, Godliness is a means of great gain when it's it's accompanied by contentment. And the author of the book of Hebrews encourages us with these words, Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Great encouragement. So perhaps for some of us this morning, we need to be a little bit more careful, more self-reflective, maybe more faithful. For others of us, maybe we need just further strong encouragement that what we're doing is the right thing, and to keep on doing it, to follow God's will. But I pray that as you listen and to the scripture this morning that the Holy Spirit's going to meet the need of your soul here today. So please turn your Bibles, as I already mentioned, to Luke 12. I'm going to read this passage to you, starting in verse 13, to begin with. So someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to him, to them, take care and be in your guard against all covetousness, Drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, Luke's concern for his reader's spiritual life, and it fits along very well with our theme this year for twenty twenty two, which is spiritual revitalization. Part of the reason we're in the gospel of Luke. And he records this story of Jesus' ethical teaching and how greed does not go with discipleship. They don't fit together. So the passage this morning is going to teach us that being rich toward God is really our underlying need. That's the underlying need for a whole life, for a full life, to be rich toward God. And see, greed carries two great dangers that we're going to look at this morning in verses 13 to 15. Greed will steal satisfaction from your life. It'll be gone. Second of all, in verses 16 to 21, greed makes eternal fools out of many people. And you've seen it, I'm sure. So, if we take this warning seriously, there are also great promises too on the flip side, right? Avoiding greed, that is being content and being a generous person, that's going to lead to a satisfied life. And it's going to show that you're eternally wise. That's what we really want in our life. And so our passage this morning in Luke, it's unique to Luke. In other words, it doesn't occur in Matthew, Mark, or John, this, sec- this section. He's presenting to us really the crisis of wealth. And we'll be talking about that in a moment because really money often presents us with a crisis. So faithful disciples of God and his Christ are going to be rich toward God and enjoy a full life. So the first danger of greed is that it steals satisfaction from our life. So there's this man in verse 13, he comes up and he requests that Jesus get involved in arbitration over his uh, probate with uh, probably his family over an inheritance. And then verses 15, 14 15, Jesus just refuses to get involved and um, decides instead he should give a warning to everybody who's paying attention about greed. And so again in verse 13 it begins, someone in the crowd, remember the crowd's gathering, thousands of people listening to Jesus, And uh, apparently this guy, you know, isn't paying attention to what Jesus is teaching about because he's not teaching about splitting inheritances, okay? And you know what's on his mind? And he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And so he asks this question. This type of request seems really strange to us in our culture, but back then it would not have been that strange of a request because rabbis, teachers of the law were sought out to settle these kinds of disputes, disputes on a regular basis. As in, in the history of the church, pastors have been sought out to do these types of things too. But in fact, not too much later on, this would become like even a, more of a, of a duty of a rabbi. They would actually travel to perform this kind of a service for people and do arbitration over probate. these kinds of things. But the law spoke to inheritance questions, certainly. But uh, it's also really important that not only did people need interpretation and correct application, but they needed to realize that the law preserved relationships above money. And how often have we seen money destroy families when someone passes on? So, but anyway, this man hoped that a teacher like Jesus, I mean, what better guy to ask, could, uh, could help him. And we don't know anything about this guy's claim. We don't know about its legality. We don't know if it's his older brother who's holding out on him. Um, you know, maybe he wanted to liquidate all the assets early so he could get his inheritance. I mean, later on, Jesus in Luke 15 is going to tell a story about the parable of the prodigal son with exactly this kind of a situation. Well, anyway, Jesus doesn't want to get involved, and so he says right away, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all greed, for one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. So actually, this refusal would be seen as strange in the time and the cultures, like that Jesus didn't get involved. Um, He's a highly respected teacher. And, uh, I mean, what's going on? Isn't this his job as a rabbi? He should be doing these things. But he doesn't want to get involved. Uh, it's not that he doesn't have the rights or the ability to arbitrate or the concern, but others can do that. He doesn't have to be occupied with that. And there are a lot of people present who, could, who have the training and uh, have the sanction from the local synagogue who could be doing this. But Jesus does things often just to make a point. And that's what he does again here. He's making a point to the man. He's making a point to the crowd of thousands of people. He's making a point through Luke to the church, even to those of us sitting here today. And that is this Jesus did not come into this world to settle earthly matters, he came into this world to accomplish kingdom of God purposes and to speak to matters of significance to the soul. That's why Jesus came. He did not come to settle earthly matters. He came to accomplish kingdom of God purposes and to speak to matters of significance to the human soul. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to talk about matters of the heart that are far more important than money. And Jesus actually has way more authority than all the rabbis anyway, being the son of God who came to earth. And he could judge the hearts of people. He knows what's going on. He's way more qualified than any rabbi in that city. But Jesus turns and speaks to the crowd and to the man and to us, and he says, beware, be on your guard. Notice the double emphasis here, the watch out for greed. We should understand that greed is insidious and all of our hearts are threatened because greed takes on many, many different forms and can sneak up and and capture us. In fact, I think that we naturally think we don't have a problem with greed. But you see, that's a problem right away because you're not being beware. You're not being on your guard. We're not being on our guard if we don't. If we somehow we think we're exempt from this problem. Now perhaps in this particular story in this matter, you know, greed shows itself in this man and Jesus can see that. He knows that. Um, he knows that this man maybe is just trying to get the best deal he possibly can out of the inheritance settlement and that's really his chief concern in life. He thinks that's gonna make him happy and blessed. I mean, we can imagine people do the same things today when these things happen, and they they give second place uh, to the relationships and their families over the money that could be theirs. Well, Jesus goes on to teach us that even when we have an abundance of money and possessions, even then, our life doesn't really consist of these possessions like we think it does sometimes. And we can easily mistake that euphoric feeling by looking upon our abundance in a time of plenty that somehow we've got true happiness of soul. Maybe it's that new thing that we bought But we know, hopefully, deep down, that that's really not what makes us happy inside at the deepest core of our being. That's not the happiness of our life. And we don't have to be filthy rich for this to happen. For many people, it happens with every single paycheck every week. It can happen because people are people. It happens to all of us. Well, there are two truths that are emphasized here by Jesus in verse 15, when he says, Be careful, my friends. First, there's an insatiable desire for the material that can overtake you and your situation of abundance. We have a saying, too, It goes like this. You're not, you'll never have enough. Yeah, it's the same idea. You'll never have enough. Because then when you get some, you realize, oh, this is great. And then you want more, and then you want more, and you never have enough. So we know that one. And the second one is, is that Jesus talks about how the abundant and joyful full, of li- full life that we really want, it's not going to be attained by accumulating wealth. We have a saying for this, too. It's money can't buy true happiness. Money can't buy true happiness. And uh, some of us have learned that. Some maybe need to. But true life now in this world is only going to be found in God and knowing him through Jesus Christ and serving him and worshiping him. That's why in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says this, greed, quote, amounts to idolatry. Greed is idolatry. And the reason that's true is because greed puts things in the place of God. And then we worship the things because we want to extract from things happiness. When our happiness should really be found in the giver of all good gifts. We replace God with his creation and we worship the creation rather than the creator. So greed steals satisfaction of life because it distorts our perspective on life, it distorts our perspective on God, it distorts our perspective on relationships with, with other people. I mean, this man is, is a great example in our storyline because, I mean, you can look back in the last couple chapters, I mean, this story's been going on for a while, ever since you know, Jesus destroyed that dinner party um, with his you know, accusations against the religious leaders, And thousands of people wanted to hear him teach, and he's teaching about the kingdom of God and about ethics and about who he is. And then you got some some dumb guy who comes up and wants to just simply ask, I want more money from my brother. Not paying attention to what's really, really going on here. And notice that Jesus mentioned that greed comes in many forms. He says, "Be, be aware of all forms of greed. And so we should watch out, not be complacent, thinking we're safe, it's all, Greed is always looking for ways to slip into our lives, so be vigilant. And next, Jesus is going to tell a parable that's going to illustrate further the nature of greed. And greed is very simply this. Here's a simple definition. It's the selfish desire to have more for yourself, trusting that it's going to bring you happiness. That's how I would define it. It's the selfish desire to have more for yourself, and trusting that that more is going to make you happier. Well, that's what this man thought, that's what the man in the coming parable thinks too. But we know that being rich toward God is really our underlying need for life, even here and now. I mean, do you want a full life? We'll talk about what a full life is in a moment. But let's talk about the second danger. So the first danger is that greed can just destroy your happiness. And you've probably seen it. But the second danger of greed is is that it can, it, it has made eternal fools out of many. And it continues to do so. So the parable of the rich fool, which is what Jesus tells next in verse 16 to 21, could also be called the parable of the typical American. Now, just so you know, I'm not picking on you when I would preach this sermon, perhaps in other countries, I would change it. And I would say, so this parable of the rich fool, it could really be titled the parable of the typical Indian when I'm in India. When I'm in Slovakia, it's the parable of the typical Slovakian. When I preach in Prague, it's the parable of the typical Czech. And when I preach in China, it's the parable of the typical Chinese person. Why? Because we all struggle with the same thing. We all struggle with the same thing. We're all fallen human beings. And those of us who don't know Christ, the struggle is very intense and has different ramifications than those of us who are in him. But it's a common problem of all humanity. And so we have this familiar problem. And that is, God blessed me, now what am I going to do? That's what happens in our prayer. This is familiar quandary. God blesses in verses 16 to 19. And then Jesus is going to declare in verse 20 to 21 that the good life is for fools. So verse 16 to 19 says... And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So the first important fact of this parable that Jesus is telling that we should notice is that this rich rich man is already rich. And then he gets an added bonus with this bumper crop that comes in this one year that must have been something else. God has blessed this rich man again, but doesn't even acknowledge him. You know, God does those kinds of things. God's been doing this for some time in this man's life. And it comes to a natural dilemma of stewardship. It's a test. It's an opportunity. However, this man is so clueless and so secular As we'll see by what he does, he's not a follower of God, and God is going to call him a fool. But, you know, it's not just these types of people that God decides to make rich. I mean, he decides to make rich and poor. That's what the scriptures say. And, uh, you know, he makes some of his followers, Christian disciples, rich too. That's fine, because it's really not about riches, is it? Now, notice how this man reasons to himself it's all about himself. Do so you notice all the first person pronouns in here? In verses 17 to 18? Look at them. He thinks to himself, What shall I do? For I have no I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and be drink and be merry oh we know a lot about this man already he seemingly never considers charity neither is he seeking about knowing god or his will and part of the process i mean it doesn't appear jesus is telling the story and it doesn't appear to him that he would even ask the question lord you've blessed me with so much what would you have me do with all this extra He assumes immediately that all his new wealth is all for him, him alone, and that somehow it's going to last his whole life, and so he comes up with the strategy on how he's going to store it up and use it so that he can spend the rest of his life living his life in ease. Well, he's greatly mistaken, thinking that the wealth is for himself or that he even produced it. The scriptures declare very clearly that God has given you the strength to produce wealth. No one has anything that has not been given to him by God. And so this man is woefully wrong in his theology. As one commentator put it, it's a great moral mismanagement of his wealth. He should be excitedly asking, well, with whom do you think God might have me share this unusual blessing? Well, his plan then becomes this major construction project to tear down existing storage containers, build newer ones, build larger ones, and hold his new crop and and all his goods. So his selfish character comes out very clearly in this storyline. And then in verse 19, it finally comes out when he considers what he's going to do with his new wealth. It's going to last him, notice, many years. Many years. Well, his goal is to take it easy and enjoy the pleasures of life. That must have been quite a bumper crop that year. But you know people with this goal? That's their goal in life? It's so sad. In reality, this man in our parable, he's a very poor planner, very poor long-term planner. He's got the wrong goal in mind, and Jesus is going to point that out in a moment. So this man in our story is a through-and-through secular businessman. A very selfish one at that. Of course, he's a fictional character, but we're supposed to study him and understand what Jesus is saying. You know, you wouldn't like this guy if you met him. Apparently, most people don't because he doesn't seem to have any family or friends. Because if he did, he'd probably share this money with them. If he has any, it seems very doubtful. I don't know, maybe he reasons they just eat up his money. But he's an isolated, self-centered, self-indulgent man. You know, the key to understanding what's going on here is the simple word fool, Afron in Greek, that Jesus uses here. It's a very important label because, you know, we might flippantly use the term fool in our culture, but in this culture, that's the worst thing you can call somebody is a fool. Because if you remember back, like if you read the book of Proverbs, who's the man you do not want to be? The fool, Not only for this life because you're a fool, but for eternity because you'll be in hell. Right? And you're opposed to God. So Jesus calls him a fool. It's a very, very, very strong term. Actually, what Jesus is referring to is a very particular psalm. He's referring to Psalm 49. It's the parable of the rich fool in the Old Testament. So I encourage you to turn to Psalm 49 for a moment because Jesus, in telling this parable in Luke, is really giving you an illustration of the Psalm 49 guy. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 49. So, let's read this this psalm for a minute. Psalm 49, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. They were musicians. And the psalm begins, hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. You see what's going on here? So Korah and his musician buddies are sitting around the campfire, and they're thinking about this problem of rich fools in the world. And they decide that maybe the best way to solve the problem is to write a song and to start playing music and to start thinking. And they'll come up with the solution. Now, of course, in this particular case, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to inspire it, and it will become Holy Scripture. Well, here's their song. It's the song of the rich fool. It begins in verse five. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who threaten cheat me surround me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of the riches? Truly no man can ransom another Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. Though they called lands by their own names. Man and his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people will approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their forms shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish." That's who Jesus is talking about in Luke 12. He's drawing the attention to the fool, the rich fool from Psalm 49, and filling it out for us. Study more of that on your own. But anyway, there's a positive spin on this whole thing too, because this is how we should make business decisions. We have advice from the apostle James, and we should seek God's will. In James chapter 4, it says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him is sin. Now, James is going to go on and talk more about this topic of wealth. But the right thing to do that he's talking about is to seek God's will in doing business. Seek his will. So then Jesus now declares then in verses 20 to 21 that the good life is for fools. And it's sort of a play on words here in the original language, but it's the he's got he's gonna end off his life here in verse 19, being merry, living the good life. And then immediately Jesus uh, says God, in this parable, God says to the man, fool. Your life will be. Well, actually, what it says literally in the in the Greek here is, is that tonight they will require your life from you. They will require your life. You see, he's a fool because he doesn't consider God and his wisdom as the basis for life, which is all over Scripture. And so, apparently, you know, God's going to let this guy finish in the story. He's going to let him finish his building project, and then as soon as he finishes it, he's going to kill him. Yeah, right when he's ready to relax, he gets cut off at the knees. So God, you know, on occasion, he judges people like this. You ever seen it? And then you sort of stand back and it's like, whoa, what did God just do? They are demanding your soul from you, it says. It's either a reference to the angels and one of their assigned tasks, or more likely it's just an idiomatic expression referring to God himself. That very day, God tells the man he would take his life from him. And so he questions the man, so now, who is going to get your stuff, though the first answer that's implied is, well, definitely not you, you're not going to get any of it, so much for the great life. It's true, you know, we have a saying, you can't take it with you, you know, everything's going to be left behind when we die. Another answer is that there's no one appointed to take it and to enjoy it. I mean, the opportunity's already passed, but the guy thought everything was for himself, and so he didn't make any plans or he didn't take the opportunity to share it with people or to, or to invest it in good opportunities that could make the world a better place and improve people's lives. Oh, no, he thought it was all for himself. The opportunity is gone. Who knows what's going to happen to it now? Somebody's going to get the money and maybe they will use it for evil purposes. Another answer is it's just going to get wasted. Just going to get wasted. In reality, life is short for all of us, much shorter than we think. And that being so, the whole issue here has very much a universal application to every single person in this room. So what's going to become of our riches? What's going to become of your riches? What's going to become of my riches? We all are we using them to become rich toward God? There's so many opportunities that God puts before us that we can use our resources for. Please turn in your Bibles to First Timothy six, verse seventeen, or just jot it down. First Timothy six, seventeen. So the Apostle Paul here gives some further instruction. He says, this is one of the biggest topics in the the Bible, you know, especially in the New Testament, is money. Big topic. So he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Well, finally, Jesus gives the moral of the story in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. As it was for this man, so it's going to be for all who store up for themselves. In the end, they get nothing. And we know that this nothing is more than just nothing. This nothing also involves a spiritual bankruptcy. This man would forfeit his soul for all eternity, suffering endlessly in hell. You see, greed and discipleship do not go together. They're incompatible. And one is going to define a person's life and determine one's destiny. The man in the story, and many others like him, have proven this proverb true, Proverbs 11.4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The gospel in the Old Testament. So we should be rich toward God. And so this is what this means. What does it mean? We've been talking about being rich toward God. Well, first of all, it means having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As we've been learning in Luke all along as we've been studying it together, Jesus has been teaching consistently that he's the eternal son of God who came from heaven to take on humanity, lived a sinless life. Eventually he would die on the cross for our sins and we could have a relationship with God by putting our faith and trust in him alone. So it'd be very clear, for clarity's sake, you can't buy heaven. Don't go away thinking that the application of this passage is I need to give away more money and then maybe if I give away more money that God will let me into heaven. You can't buy heaven. It doesn't work that way. We have to trust in Jesus' righteousness to deliver us from our own sin. You don't have enough money to pay for your soul we just read that actually in psalm 49 did you catch that jesus had to pay the price to set us free on that cross and be raised from the grave and it's a full payment that covers all of our sin in all of its depth but you know specifically here in our passage today the point is is that a person who's truly been saved by jesus lives out this ethic of the kingdom in their life it characterizes who they are they're generous people They're not selfish people. When they get extra resources, they don't just hoard it for themselves, but they think, oh, I wonder what God has in mind. What should I do? And they pray and think and look for opportunities. In fact, Jesus is going to teach a lot more on being rich toward God in the next section, starting in verse 22 to verse 34, and you can read ahead if you'd like sometime this week. But you see, greed makes eternal fools out of many people because greed works to build wealth for oneself while abandoning people to this ever increasing poverty toward God. Now there are some implied questions in the text. You know that's how parables work, one of the ways in which they work. There's always an implied question. And you gotta figure out what is that question. So most of us are already rich like the man in the parable. So the implied question is what are we gonna do with our riches with the unexpected windfalls that come our way? Are we gonna live as a disciple should? And I know most of us do, I mean, For what it's worth, I would say this congregation excels and is a good example of helping people with their resources. But we want to be even richer toward God, knowing that the one way to expand your life to be full is to be generous and to be content. Now, there's a really important distinction that needs to be made, again, in that Jesus is not condemning financial planning. Jesus is not condemning having a lot of money. I mean, who do you think gave the guy all the money in the first place, in the story? And Jesus is not condemning people for enjoying the gifts that he gives. We just read that in 1 Timothy. We're supposed to enjoy the things that God gives us. Jesus is warning us, though, to beware of greed. That's the selfish perspective on his gifts and how to use them. Why? Because it creeps up on us. Because as we do well, and as we get blessed, it can creep up, and we really ought to beware and ask God to show us the reality of where our character is at this point in time. And Sometimes, for some of us, maybe it's just looking at your checkbook or your balance sheet and asking God some questions and how he might reveal the truth to you. But we've heard how greed, this morning, steals satisfaction in life and how it makes many fools, eternal fools, out of people, but Hopefully you've also heard and absorbed the corresponding promise that contentment and generosity lead to a satisfied life. So if you want a full satisfied life, obviously put your trust in Jesus. But on top of that then, because your trust is in Jesus, well then be content. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. And be generous. And show yourself eternally wise. Now I wonder if you ever read this little book uh, called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Anybody ever heard of this book? It's been around for 20 plus years now. Yeah. Oh, a few people. Good. Very small book, right? Very small book. You can read it. And uh, it's only like three pages a chapter or something like that. It's a wonderful little book called The Treasure Principle, and it will help you find out if you indeed are rich toward God, and how rich, and how to get richer toward God. So, in fact, this book really, really helped me. That's why I'm recommending it. So, I encourage you to pick it up. And uh, Jesus would also teach us later in Matthew 6, these words, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So this book will help you figure this out. Well, our greatest desire for our resources really should be to advance the kingdom of God So a key passage I want to close with and pray through is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and following. You don't need to turn that right now, but just write it down. 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 6 and following. Now I say this, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, You may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave gifts to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality through which us is producing thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, that is fellow Christians, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. May we all by God's grace be empowered, to be joyful in generosity through the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your scriptures, your teaching, pointing us to Jesus Christ as the full satisfaction of our life that you've intended for us to have. And that because we're in him, we can live out the ethics of the kingdom of God, that we can live out what it is that we're supposed to do. The generosity, really, that Jesus bestowed on us, we can bestow toward other people. And I ask that you would increase our contentment and give us wisdom and protect us from greed that can creep upon our lives and destroy them and make us unhappy people. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.